So uh, good evening, Mary. Thanks for uh, contacting me. I saw you in the, the comments of uh, my videos and you know, I watched you in, on Paul Denicli's channel, I think uh, three times, right? And uh, Yes, I've been on there three times, right. Yeah, and yeah. you also started your YouTube channel a few weeks ago and you have a couple of videos and in, uh, there's especially one, I think, where we could have uh, fruitful discussions, the one where you discussed your uh, ladder about relevance realization. <laughs> <laughs> and right. I saw it also in uh, the, the comment section in that video that you had a quick discussion with John, uh, especially regarding uh, the deep continuity of relevance realizations. Right. Yeah. And um, right. I think that would be a great place for us to talk. Yeah, because um, in that video, you, you, yeah, you made the ladder between, uh, I mean, it started at the level of a very simple uh, organisms. Like I think you, uh, what did you start with already? Was it cells or a, you, I, I remember you talked about worms? Well, I was taught, I, the latter was not really about levels of organisms, but rather levels of responses, because even in the higher organisms, those simple responses to the environment go on. So, mm -hmm. for example, you know, if you're you'll naturally just move, like if if you're if some cold air blows on you, and you and you suddenly feel that you'll just naturally move away from it. Um, that's a real simple response, mm -hmm. and I don't think in terms of that response that it's really that different from um, the response of say a worm. You know, when you dig it out of the compost and it's going to go back in where it's comfortable. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't so much a matter of levels of organisms as levels of responses. But I do think that the higher, more complex responses, and especially the ones that are um that are more i'm going to use the word spiritual mm -hmm. you know or um that have to do with metaphors like using taste as a metaphor for liking things that you don't eat that kind of thing i do think that's only applicable to higher organisms mm -hmm. so what did you what caught your attention about that especially well um in especially in the sort of uh theories I discuss often on my channel uh, around panpsychism. Oh, we froze for a moment. Um, around panpsychism, the, the main issue is the, how, how it is that consciousnesses can combine and fragment. And you know, in uh, your, your ladder of, uh, uh, what's the term you used exactly? In your ladder of uh, reactions or? Um, yeah, I was trying to think of a word that would that would encompass all of them and i thought mm -hmm. about maybe responses um or something i couldn't really think of a term that that entirely encapsulated all of them um because you want it to be conscious pardon do you want it to be conscious you know to have something to do with well I do. And let me let me talk to you a little bit about that, because mm -hmm. that kind of gets down to the bottom. Right. Mm -hmm. um, OK, so I would ask the question of why. Things have to be conscious. So and I do think that consciousness goes all the way through life. In other words, I would grant to plants much more consciousness than what we have. Mm -hmm generally through history granted to plants i don't think mm -hmm. that plants are simply chemical machines made out of made out of carbon or something mm 
Mm -hmm. I think that plants are much more, and we're finding that out. Scientists are finding out how complicated or complex plants reactions with their environment mm -hmm. are, how they communicate. They communicate with each yeah. other. They show preferences. They even show genetic preferences. For example, plants share nutrients with one another through mm -hmm. the fungal network that's in the ground. And plants of the same species will share nutrients with each other in preference to other species, but plants will also share nutrients to their own genetic offspring mm -hmm. in preference even to other members of their own species, mm -hmm. which is, you know, we're getting into a real, a real complicated, complex interaction with the environment when we see that kind of thing right mm -hmm. yeah so um so i would grant to plants much more consciousness and i would say that every living thing is conscious wouldn't you say that well you say everything is conscious so <laughs> there are caveats right. there but almost <laughs> but what i would ask is what the reason for consciousness is and i would see consciousness as um as as something that that is in a living thing so that the living thing can fulfill its needs so when you start talking about things like you know atoms or quarks mm -hmm. or something i guess my question would be what would be its need that it would be fulfilling that it would that consciousness would be of assistance to it does that make sense yeah, um, I guess there are two ways I could take this in order to respond. One, I, I could either challenge your, you know, your function of consciousness, or I could try to, you know, spell out what the need would be for, you know, the, the consciousness of an electron. Let's say, and I think even if, even without challenging your definition and you know, trying to answer answer your question directly, of, you know, what would be the the need to fulfill in an electron? I think you know, it would be, for instance. You know, it, it does look like electrons don't like to be with one another. You know, they, they repel one another and they, they, they like to be close to protons, for instance. You know, they seem to have, if you want to frame it in terms of need, it seems like they, they need to be close to, to neutrons and to avoid electrons. So you could say it like this. And in order to make this more convincing, I think this is where I would sort of, try to at least tweak your uh, definition of you know, consciousness being about trying to fulfill a, a, a need. And I guess the, the step I want to say is, I don't just want to use consciousness as a, as a tool to explain how organisms feel their needs, but I want to make the further step of, to explain how it is that organisms actually behave the way they do. What is the, 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 the deep reason for their behavior. Um, let's say if I it it will work in this in the case of organisms just like in your uh, your your system. I think in the case of a let's say a a worm who wants to uh, avoid sunlight because he has some need to stay I don't know cold and uh, moist. I don't know. He he, mm -hmm. he wants to fulfill that need and. The behavior which you will see is that if you expose him to sunlight, then he'll he will run away. Um, and the deep reason for this behavior will be in 
I think the consciousness of the worm, you will feel some strong sense of maybe uh, yeah, discomfort in the presence of, of light and strong, strong sense of com comfort uh, in, the you know, in the presence of you know, the, the darkness deep in, in the ground. And the, I want to say that the deep reason for this behavior is in the consciousness of the, of, of the worm. That's why he behaves this way. And you know, putting the consciousness there allows me to do this explanation not only for living things such as worms, but also for um, even electrons and atoms. And I'm able to explain why it is that uh, why it is that an atom follows the equations we get from physics, for instance, because otherwise it's, it remains a mystery. You know, why it is that electrons repel one another and attract one another? What is the, the reason? Physicists can you know, tell us equations and they can give us mass and charge and so on, but that just pushes the question further back because we don't know why it is that electrons follow those laws. But the, the panpsychist move is to say that, well, if you, you say that just like living organisms uh, you know, have their real behavior explained by their consciousnesses, in the case of electrons, <coughs> their, their behavior would also be explained by their consciousness. So it's really a, a matter of explanatory power to put consciousness all the way down. Yeah, you, you fill the ontological void that is left by just, a, the, by just studying physics, for instance. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes, yes, it makes sense. Um, I guess, okay, so let me come at this from another angle. And I, I think one of the, okay, here's one of the things is that I wonder is how we would know, like how we would ever know these consciousnesses. Well, that's a, that's a what good do question. You, what would you say about that? How would we ever, <laughs> how would we, I mean, we know, going back to, <coughs> excuse me, John Ravakey's Deep Continuity. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the things that he mentioned is, that our, is our participatory knowing. And I would say that because we are organisms with needs that interact with our environment and mm -hmm. fulfill our needs, that and we can and we see even on the microscopic level organisms that do that that are embodied organisms mm -hmm. that fulfill needs by for example by eating uh mm -hmm. by reproduction and all of that that we deeply participate in all the levels of i'm gonna use the expression the um the chain of being all the way down okay yeah. um what what is it that we would ever observe i mean you mentioned about attraction and repulsion on the you know electromagnetic mm -hmm. the electromagnetic entities but what is it that we would ever observe in them that would that would make us think that their experience of that their experience of their own phenomena is con continuous with that of living things mm -hmm. to I, I where's the where's like the where's the dividing line where's where is where's life or is everything also alive and not just conscious what good, do you understand question. my question yeah um and uh, one thing which may be helpful is um there's i, I got this from i think a video where if yeah that's something a physicist mentioned in a video i'm not sure what's the name of the physicist maybe it was freeman dyson i'm not sure um who and this makes sense from what we know in modern physics, where you know, things get dicey when you talk about quantum mechanics because it can be interpreted in a different way. But one of the, the ways uh, in which you can interpret it is that the small 
particles which you know, behave randomly when we observe them in the laboratory. It's, it seems that they're making choices. Let's say when, uh, you know, because when, when I said that electrons you know, repel one another and they uh, are attracted to protons, no, it's not actually linear, like that electrons will always repel one another and that protons will, uh, will always be attracted to, to electrons. No, there are statistics involved here, which make it seem as if you know, the, 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 there's always a certain probability that the electron will be attracted to another, uh, uh, sorry, that the electron will be repelled by another electron, that it will want to, to go away from the other electron. <laughs> but you no, know, at any given moment, it could or could not choose to, to, to go away. But the probability is that it will. But it's just a probability in the same way that you know, if you expose the worm to sunlight, the probability is that it will leave. You know, and the more time he spends there, the, the, the higher the likelihood that he will leave. But this seems also to be what is going on at the level of the particles, where they seem to be making choices or tiny, small, ridiculously <laughs> simple choices, but still. And very short in duration. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, still it seems like choices. And you know, this is something that Bergson was suggesting even before uh, you know, we knew about quantum mechanics. And even you know, there, as I said, I want to make it clear that things get dicey and I don't want to you know, give too much weight to you know, using quantum mechanics in philosophical theories because it, it's so easy to interpret in many different ways. But yeah, I think that would be the direct answer to your question is you can see life and that, that's, what, that's not what directly Bergson said, but that's what Whitehead said, that life goes all the way down and consciousness is tied with life. Okay, so, so, you're, so you're not just taking so you're not just taking, so if you, so the, what you're saying is if you're going to move consciousness all the way down, you're moving life all the way down. You're basically saying that the, that these things are organisms of some sort. I don't know if I want to commit myself to this. I think it's likely that there are other reasons why, like um, the, yeah, I mentioned the fact that, yeah, maybe there's like three things here going on. Um, first, yeah, I mentioned the fact that putting consciousness there allows you to you know, solve the uh, ontological void of physics where you don't know why entities are being behaving the way they do. Um, another reason is that it solves the hard problem of consciousness very elegantly. It means that consciousness doesn't just pop out of nowhere in the ontological chain of being. And that is the, yeah, that is a move that people often make. Um, and yeah, I'll go back to this, but before I want to you know, give a note about organisms. And you know, the reason why I, I, I at least, I'm at least sympathetic to the explanation I just gave of interpreting uh, fundamental particles as making choices is, you know, I think it makes sense. I think it's likely, but I, it's not the sole explanation. Uh, and it's not the one which, yeah, not all panpsychists want to say this. What panpsychists will most likely say is those two things, which I mentioned earlier, is that, well, it, the, putting consciousness in the fundamental particles allows you to give, explain their nature, why, why it is that they behave this way. And it also allows you to solve the art problem of consciousness. So it means that consciousness doesn't just pop out of nowhere. And those two imply that you know, the particles will be conscious and then people sort of leave it there often. <laughs> Lots of panpsychists will leave it there. But I'm, I, I think looking at it, that it's very elegant. It makes sense to say that the fundamental particles are, you know, very simple organisms, that they're simple living beings. 
And yeah, so I'm jumping around in, in those three points, but I do want to say more about the art problem of consciousness because it, it's really a, yeah, Pensacus is an extremely elegant solution here because it solves the problem in sort of two important ways, which the first one, which everyone, everyone knows uh, in philosophy of mind at least is, you know, if you, if you say that consciousness starts at some point, doesn't have to be even at the level of human, but if you want to say that, let's say, consciousness starts at the level of, of cells. Well, if it starts there, well, then you have to explain how it is that the consciousness in cells is created from, you know, the, the proteins in the cells, which are not themselves conscious. So why it is, how it is that you can make that jump between, you know, completely unconscious proteins, which somehow become assembled into a conscious organism in the case of the cell, you get a, a big, you know, there's a big gap in your, your worldview. If you don't want to put consciousness all the way down, you need to explain why there is a, a jump somewhere in your ontology. Maybe it's between proteins and, and cells. Some people may want to say that only humans are conscious, and then you have to explain why it is that our neurons are not conscious, but the whole brain is conscious, maybe. You have to explain this. And there's also the issue that you have to explain. So that, that's, a, that's an... Uh, yeah, that's an explanation in the ontological chain of being, but you can also put the same problem in terms of the temporality. So when, it, when is it that in evolution, for instance, uh, consciousness was selected? So if you want to say that, well, consciousness starts at cells, for instance, then you have to say how it is that, you know, evolution selected this consciousness for cells. You know, if the proteins before the cells were never conscious, why it is that you know, the, the, the cells would, be selected as conscious all of a sudden. So there, those are sort of two ways of articulating the, the mind-body problem. Right. And consciousness solves, uh, uh, sorry, panpsychism solves them by putting consciousness all the way down and then panpsychists are committed to the fact that, well then, it means that fundamental particles are, are conscious and they don't, typically don't talk about life, but I, I, I do think we can and yeah, that's the, the, the answer I gave you initially. Does that, that make sense? <laughs> it makes sense. Now, I have a lot of sympathy for for your whole project, I have a lot of sympathy for panpsychism because um, I have this, I have such a deep antipathy, antipathy toward materialism that it's, it's like, you know, I, I'm at the point, I got to the point a few years ago with materialism, you're frozen up, can you hear me okay? Yep. Can you hear yeah, me okay? Hear you you're frozen up for a moment. Okay, um, so I got to the point a few years ago when I was like, I don't care what people believe in anymore. I don't care if it's Christianity or it's Buddhism or Hinduism or um, if it's, you know, um, animism or new age gobbledygook or, um, or if we can bring back, you know, the sprites and the fairies and the, and the um, zephyrs and the nymphs and, and populate the world with, <laughs> with uh, you know, elves, elves on the shoemakers table and you know fairies in the garden the whole thing just get us out of this materialism it's so horrible you know <laughs> because because the world is alive i mean to anyone you know i think with an with an open heart the world is so alive and it you know it it just shines forth in in all of its in its response to you in the sense that you know when we um when we love things they respond and really 
it looks like everything can respond to love, right? It looks like, you know, the carpenter that's making something out of wood who approaches it with love, that it changes the work, you know, and that, and that work is expressed in that material thing. So it certainly looks like everything can respond to love. Um, you know, even when you are cooking and you are loving through the cooking, the people you're cooking for, and also loving, which how do we ever do that in a grocery store? It's impossible. But if you're loving that squash that you took out of the garden and you loved that squash all the way from a seed through its growth, and now you're preparing it for someone that it, it seems like everything responds to love. Um, and so the idea that, you know, that goes all the way down to the atoms and the, and the quartz and everything. I don't necessarily, you know, I have a, I have like an intuitive, just, it's a, it's a, um, I like it. I just like it. Cause I like the kind of world that it gives us. And I've always felt that I lived in that kind of world anyway. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's, so that's why I come in it. it emotion from an emotional level um i guess you'd call that emotional intuitive whatever but there's there's another there's a different aspect of it that i'd like to come at and that is you know i really do like john verveke's um idea of the deep continuity which i know he got from someone else but i think the deep continuity idea maybe can explain this also and possibly connect up with theism that better or you could tell me if you think it it's better possibly connect up with theism um in a more classical way which doesn't necessarily make it right but i just want to play around with that idea for a minute and what i want to what i want to do it in the context of would be thinking about this ancient idea about the great chain of being okay which a lot of people when they hear this idea of the great chain of being there they think of it we're just talking about links in a chain that is static and not as a dynamic system but the ancient idea of the great chain of being was not just you know this thing this thing this thing this thing stacked up and 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 being able to say okay well this is more complex than this and this is this is vegetate this is vegetative life with vegetative souls and this is animal life with animal souls and this is human life with rational soul and then there's angels and there's god that thing it it, it is a dynamic system and ef shoemaker especially pointed this out this out in his book um a guide for the perplexed where he talked about okay um you can start at the top or at the bottom and that's why this is this pattern of being of the both the um, the eminence and the emergence the eminence and the emergence it's that working inside of us as john berveke has pointed out in his in his series that that's how how we work with things coming it's not top down or bottom up it's both and all the time constantly in our consciousness right even and in relevance realization but it's it's a pattern of being that we see in the universe. So um, let's I'll start at the bottom and let's just start with the ancient 
idea that there's mineral that you divide it mineral like mineral and living things you know you make that division between what is non-life and life okay. okay life is um life is pulling the mineral into life by making it part in other words it's the, the the even the simplest organism the very simplest organisms directly mm -hmm. use minerals right mm -hmm. and combine them to make their combine them to make their cells now and now the cells can be broken down if you know into the amino acids and all of that and you mm -hmm. at the bottom you end up you're going to end up with the chemicals all the chemicals from the periodic table okay but it's the life is it life living organisms are pulling the non-life into life by absorbing them and making them part of their living systems mm -hmm. and then the simpler life forms are being pulled up into the higher life forms by being consumed by those life forms mm -hmm. right and then the um and it goes all the way up and in the human is pulling all of these things into the human life and ultimately into spiritual life and that you can see this happening now there's two things about this one thing is that we can observe this in the world around us and it leaves us at the at the top of it it leaves us with a question when we make this observation of this happening you know so that the human brings everything into its life you know we we wear rings made out of minerals that have deep significance for us we uh, we have pets we uh we garden we farm all of this all of life we we're bringing it up into the human into the human life and then at the top of it it's this is like the thomistic move right mm -hmm. at the top of this when we observe it we're left with a question it's like it's like it's an arrow like being is an arrow pointing up but we don't know what's up beyond mm -hmm. it so it leaves us with the question of if we're if every level life is pulling the lower levels up is there someone or something up above that's pulling us up okay mm -hmm. so that that that's that aspect of it but i want to give another aspect of it that goes into your concept of the fall right mm -hmm. which is that while we do see this going up we see that there's not a linear progression so the simplest organism will die and dissolve back into that material layer mm -hmm. right yep. and that's true of all the organisms all the way up they all they'll they'll fall even mm -hmm. within that chain of being you have lower life forms consuming higher life forms Yep. so this so it's not like you just get it's not like just up but it's like this falling down going up falling mm -hmm. down going up okay yeah and so it's a pattern it's a pattern of resurrection of death and resurrection all through the whole chain of being it's mm -hmm. a, a dynamic pattern and uh, um so this kind of this kind of pattern 
opens up the question of whether that pattern in the natural order that we see is also the pattern of the whole cosmos in a way. And I think that the scripture, when the scripture says that creation was subjected to futility, that that's speaking to that, that constant, it's as though nature is... Where it's is in uh, Romans the eighth chapter. Okay. okay. The, the whole creation was subjected to futility. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of you know these mysterious things in the scriptures <laughs> that you kind of touched on when you talked about the fall and how how the fall can be understood in terms of this creation where the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world right what mm -hmm. is yeah. what does that mean you know and when i had my talk with um karen i don't know if you saw my talk with karen wong i, I saw a discussion you had with someone else i think uh with karen and with someone else but not the but one i talked to karen i talked to luke um i'll have to watch that no i don't think i saw yeah. you with karen alone well we we got into Oh, you saw the discussion with Karen and someone else, a third yeah, person. Yeah. Oh, but I had a, a discussion with Karen, just uh, Karen and I talked together okay. without a third person mm -hmm. and we were talking about creation. And so one of the, one of the theological controversies within Christianity mm -hmm. it is, and you kind of alluded to this, it's whether we're living in plan B or plan A, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and um you know my my personal you know take on that is that this is this was always the plan <laughs> you know it's not like adam it's not like adam and eve sinned and god went whoops i gotta figure something out here <laughs> but, but the, this that this was always the plan mm -hmm. but that we if we look at it in terms of time only you know, from the human perspective, it, it's like, it makes no sense. So when you, when you look in the book of Genesis and you see, you have two creation accounts, right? And in mm -hmm. one of them, um, you know, the, in the first um, book of Genesis or the first chapter of Genesis, everything's made before humans appear, right? Yep. In the second book of Genesis, the man is already there and God is bringing the animals to him as they're made and asking yeah. him to name them, which that is, that's a whole nother level of conception because it's the idea that somehow or another we are participating in the creation and that that goes all the way down to even the other life forms. Yeah. Well, how could we have done that if they were here before us? And my my idea about that is that is that the creation itself at the time of creation because with god it's all it's all the eternal now there is no time for him mm -hmm. no time passing for him mm -hmm. that that what that the way that creation is the way the cosmos is laid out is actually the result of our fall even when it's before so creation mm -hmm. redemption and justification are all one act of god's love 
and his love his expression of love is in giving us our freedom but that that made that that our free choices both good and evil have made the creation the way it is mm -hmm. so that um when you look at you know sometimes we we think about the monstrous animals and you know all through all of the mythology of of humanity the monstrous animals are in us anyway right <laughs> right yeah the lot the monstrous animals are, are within us as mm -hmm. well as being out there in nature. So, you know, but it's like we contain the monstrosities, we contain mm -hmm. the, um, we contain the parasitism because we can act parasitically. So we contain the parasites, we contain the, the raging bulls because the raging bulls are inside we contain you know it's like all of these things that are out there even maybe like the the terrible lizards of the past and you know the um maybe even the volcanoes maybe even the tsunamis maybe even all of these things that are in the physical world really a manifestation of what is in us and that it's um it physically manifests what we actually are so if i try to connect <laughs> that with with what you said earlier about you know the uh us uh, let's say about uh, the the mineral being pulled up in the vegetal uh, vegetative the vegetative being pulled up in the animal the animal being pulled up in the uh, in intellectual um you know, it should always keep going up uh, towards god um mm -hmm. and because of the fall we can see within us that uh, there's a fall back towards the the mineral towards death mm -hmm. and the manifestations which we see following the fall such as even tsunamis and all, all the monsters for instance they all are a an exemplification of going back from the intellectual uh, uh, going back from god downs toward matter is that sort of the the, the the link between the two things you said yes but they're also they're also that rebel rebelliousness mm -hmm. that rebelliousness as you were talking about how the rebelliousness is not just on the level of the human to god but is even on the level of the cells to us right yeah, yeah. so then that accords with what that accords very perfectly with what classical christianity has always mm -hmm. said that perfection after the resurrection that perfection in the resurrected body is means that the physical then is truly subservient to the spiritual yeah. whereas now it is not it is rebel it is yeah. in rebellion mm -hmm. right yeah. but that in the resurrection what what we will have we have bodies which are completely mm -hmm. um which completely serve so then mm -hmm. the material completely serves the spiritual yeah. no longer rebel yeah. no longer rebelling mm -hmm. okay yeah and that's true in the whole chain so the mineral perfectly serves right. the, the vegetative the vegetative perfectly serves the animal the animal perfectly serves the intellectual the intellectual perfectly serves god right okay good good so i think i understood you and um 
Yeah, I'd like to go back to your first point about you know whether panpsychism or deep continuity uh, is best compatible with uh, classical theism. And I think the, the biggest advantage I see in panpsychism is not so much when you look down you know, towards fundamental protocols, but when you look upwards um, with panpsychism, even without needing to rely on classical arguments for the existence of God, uh, you can already be fairly confident that there are higher forms of consciousnesses. You can start talking about angels and principalities and, and powers by, uh, by observing that there seems to be higher level organisms than just humans. Let's say you can talk about groups of humans. And I've tried to do that in some videos. It's, yeah, it's, I, I always find it hard to do, especially to convince you know, naturalist-oriented uh, people. But, uh, and at least it will be easier to explain higher level entities in panpsychism than using the deep continuity hypothesis. Um, because yeah, I, I don't think, for instance, that saying that fundamental protocols have consciousness as the panpsychist does necessarily helps when you go into classical theism. But uh, whereas, you know, if you're, if you just use the deep continuity like John does, you said, well, fundamental protocols are not necessarily conscious, but there is something continuous between them and us. Our consciousness doesn't just pop out of nowhere. It's just that basically the way I see it with deep continuity is that you don't commit yourself to, you know, what is your best candidate for, you know, the, the ontological nature of, of fundamental particles. With, with the panpsychist, you say, well, I, I'm pretty sure it's consciousness. I'm not certain, but I know I'll, 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 postulate, I'll postulate this because it's my best guess. Whereas in deep continuity, you just say, well, there is something there. I'm not sure what it is. It's you know, continuous with our consciousness, but you don't make further steps. The advantage really comes when you look at, at IR levels. Um, if you, if you uh, are bound to deep continuity, like uh, in, John's system, for instance, um, you, know, you have to explain, if you look at, like, like at in, in classical Christianity, you want to see that the, the church is the body of Christ, that uh, you know, we are really united in, in one body and one mind. And this will be hard to explain if you just have deep continuity, because the, what will most likely occur then is that you will have to see at, you know, what are the sort of the, the, phys the physical traits that we find in humans when we're conscious. And then you have to see whether those physical traits are exemplified in a church, for instance. And I've tried to do that in my uh, video I did on communion through panpsychist eyes. I tried to limit myself to, let's see, what are the kinds of networks in human brains which exhibit consciousness? And I tried to see if you can observe that kind of networks in a church, especially during a uh, Holy Communion. And you can make some Edwin, some Edwin there, but it's, it's difficult. Um, I don't know if you watched that video. Yes, I did. So yeah, I've, watched, I've watched all your videos. Um, <laughs> that one, that one, um, here's what I think would help you with that, mm -hmm. would be to really get into some of the theology on the Eucharist mm -hmm. and study that and then come back to it afterwards. Yeah. Um, so it, let's talk about it in terms of patterns for a minute, because, you yeah. know, do you watch Jonathan Pajot? Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. So we'll, we're always looking at patterns, right? Mm -hmm. So 
I can look at a pattern and ask, okay, like we're saying, bread becomes flesh, right, mm -hmm. in the Eucharist. Yep. All right. But, you know, we see that pattern anyway. Bread becomes flesh all the time, right? Yeah, when we eat. Yeah. <laughs> when we eat it, you know. <laughs> so it's like you're always seeing it's this, the pattern, and we could say wine becomes blood just in the, in the natural order too. Here's an interesting thing that, that you might really like a lot. Okay, so um, I learned from a friend of mine about how to make soap a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. And um, now soap is made from a combination of fat and it can be a vegetable oil or it can be an animal fat, mm -hmm. like, um, you know, suet or lard or something like that. Mm -hmm. It's a fat combined with uh, lye, which is extracted from uh, basically when things are burned, like, um, you know, ash, ashes, right? So that combination makes soap. So my friend was explaining that in the ancient world, temples were always put at the tops of hills, and, the, and there were always sacrifices at the temples. And so as the sacrifices were made, the fats of the animals would melt. They would mix with the ashes that were there for the burning of the sacrifice or from the burning of the sacrifice. And that they would be washed, you know, the area would be washed. Either it would have a natural water source like a spring or something, or the humans would bring water to it in some way to wash the area. So you'd have rivulets of this material that would go down into the rivers, okay? And so when you read about women going to the rivers to wash their clothes and beat them on the rocks by the side of the river, it's because there was soap there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there was soap that was made naturally as this, as, this, um, as this stuff flowed down into the rivers from the hills where the sacrifices mm -hmm. were. So think about this. Can you hear me? Because you look like you're freezing. Yeah, you we're okay? freezing, but yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, I caught everything you, you said. You just, okay. the, the image so was freezing from Think about this. Even in the natural order, sacrifice leads to cleanliness. Right? Yeah. But you the, see how the patterns, it's like the patterns just are always, <laughs> always there. We're just, we, just need, we just need to see them. And then once we see them, everything gets knit together. I think. I think everything knits together from the lowest to the highest through the pat through the patterns. I think that's what Jonathan Pajot is telling us. But I think John Verveke, when he talks about the way that our the way that our cognition works, he's really making showing us another pattern in which we're embedded in this whole world of patterns. Yeah. The the difficulty I have and the reason why I like to use Panpsychism here is that it's not obvious that if you just look at the patterns, for instance, a, a common reply from materialists and naturalists, and even from the, the part of myself that is still a, a naturalist, um, you know, <laughs> there's a risk that this is just psychological stuff and it's not really ontology. You know that, well, we do see those patterns, but you need a further move to explain how this, uh, all those patterns are actually reality and not just psychology, how they're not just an epiphenomena. And 
this is why I like to use uh, Pesachism because, well, even without, yeah, we can see it almost right now. It looks that as if you're a panpsychist, you can say that, well, when entities are making choices, they're typically conscious. So if you look at an electron, if it looks like the electron is, is conscious, it, it probably is. If, it, uh, if I'm making a choice, I'm conscious. When I'm not making choices, I'm not really conscious. When I'm acting on reflexes or I'm sleeping, for instance, I'm not conscious. But when I make choices, I am conscious. And similarly, if you look at certain patterns, let's say the, all the, the patterns of, if you take communion, if you take, let's say, uh, if, you, if you take Christians, if you take the, the church, the church as a whole does seem like it is an organism which is making choices and you know, advancing through history and uh, ma making decisions and so on. And yes. you know, th this pattern is not just a psychological epiphenomena where we see nice patterns here and there, but within panpsychism, it's easy to say that, well, just like those, all those other patterns are conscious, the patterns you see in the church are really conscious. It's really an entity with which you can interact and so on. So this is, I think the, the practical move which a, a panpsychist can make to you know, turn this th those patterns into you know, uh, ontology. Whereas, yeah, I'd be curious to, to hear how it is you know, in your system, where you know, what would be your move to answer the, the people who are worried that all those patterns are just psychological epiphenomena and that they're not you know, real ontology? Well, I think, <laughs> I think the the um, expression just psychological should be <laughs> completely deconstructed because <laughs> what, okay you it's like what is psychological what what do you mean when you say psychological and why are you putting that just in front of it <laughs> you know how make you justify that just in any way <laughs> Yeah, it because, will probably um, come back to your your hatred <laughs> of materialism. <laughs> There's a distinction yeah. between what is material, what you can touch, you know, what is real, and then what is you no. Know, oh, so only what you can touch is real. Now, now you know. John Verbecki does not agree with that. <laughs> is E equals M C squared just psychological? <laughs> yeah, that, that's so, a good question. Um, so, so um, you know, and so what we're getting into really is the question of how spirit interacts with the material world. That's really what we're getting into, and yeah. um, and does the does the material world have to be um, have to be conscious all the way down in order for spirit to interact with it? But I guess I. I could make your move of doing the analogical thing. And I'm not really even arguing with you. I'm just, you know, just playing with the ideas. Yeah, yeah. But I could make your move and say, well, here you are, a unified person, a unified organism, right? You interact with other organisms all the time. And you even believe you're yeah. interacting with organisms all the way down in your own um, being. But you also, you, so you can interact with organisms and you can interact, we'll, we'll just take the materialist view for a minute and say that you are alive, but that your pen or your cup is not. And then say, well, just like you're able to interact with other living things and you're able to interact with non-living things, you know, that, that to say, well, how does the spirit interact with everything? Um, it's the same way. You know, the spirit can interact both with the material, non-living material, and can interact with other living things. 
So it's, you know, it's not a, it's not a barrier. I think the consciousness, I think the consciousness issue or question at the level of how does consciousness emerge is I, I would say that if there's a top that goes beyond human consciousness, which we both agree there is because we both believe in God, okay, that there's, that there's something reaching down as well as things that are reaching up. So we have, so we're not putting the emergence, we're not putting the roof on the emergence at the human level, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, or even at the level of the physical universe. Mm -hmm. So there, the reaching down the creation for a Christian, this is not just that God pushes everything at the beginning, right? It's that yep. God it has a purpose in the creation and is pulling the creation towards that purpose, mm -hmm. which explains this thing that John Verveke says about intelligibility. Because one of the points he makes is that things that, things that are emergent, emergent things are always intelligible, right? Or, yep. you know, not emergent, that's not the word I want. As, as potential turns into actuality, the actuality is always intelligible. Intelligible, okay. right? We're not suddenly, things are not suddenly becoming unintelligible as we move into the future. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I could give a response. I like that and I want to use that, but I also could see an argument against it, which would simply be there may be all kinds of unintelligible things, but because they're unintelligible, we cannot even perceive them. So that that might be a problem. That might be a that could be the case too. Right? What, what was the move initially? You were saying that well, we we see the higher patterns, and because I'm not sure I saw what move you were trying to do before the counter argument. Um that he uh, okay so what i'm trying to talk what i'm talking about is putting the okay so god is pulling the creation toward a a purpose toward yep. a telea teleology right yeah it's not creation is not god pushing at the beginning like yeah yep. you know like say you're standing on you're you're standing at the edge of water and you push something out and there it goes it floats off right yeah but rather god is also besides giving the initial let it be mm -hmm. you know push god is also pulling yep. towards a conclusion yeah and it's that conclusion that makes the constraints mm -hmm. and the constraints are what make the intelligibility Okay. That, does that make sense of what I said? Yeah, it's I think cons so. It's the constraints that make, that, that make the intelligibility. And, uh, but I was also saying that someone could argue that there may be all kinds of unintelligible things also happening, but because they're unintelligible, we do not even perceive them. Mm -hmm. That what is constrained is our ability to, uh, to perceive. Mm -hmm. And we are only going to perceive what's intelligible anyway. Mm -hmm. so. And I, I think I understand you and I agree with you, but I'm not sure how this answers the issue we were dealing with of, you know, how it is that we can justify the uh, ontological existence of higher patterns. Okay. 
well, I'm not, that's not what I'm trying to oh, okay. do. What I'm trying to Sorry. do is give an explanation mm -hmm. for how we make these, for how there are discontinuities in the chain of being. Okay. At the point of, like, that there, were, that there could be a break between what is unconscious and what is conscious. Okay. And that there could then be, you know, mm -hmm. so you could have these breaks or, or between non-living and li living, if you want to put it that way. That, that it is that God, you know, in other words, I'm saying that it makes a difference. It can make a difference mm -hmm. in this explanation for how, for why the fundamental particles would not have to be conscious and mm -hmm. yet can behave the way okay. that they can. Okay, I see your point. All right. Um, that which in your in your in your ontology with these fundamental particles, there mm -hmm. still has to be a ground of being. Yep. Right, and yep. you would say that is God. Yep. Okay. So what I'm saying is, okay. So you've got the ground of being. You've got God. Mm -hmm. You this God is personal. This God has a purpose. Has a teleology yep. for the entire creation mm -hmm. so that could that could explain why things behave as they do because of the constraints mm -hmm. based upon his purpose that god has put into the creation in other words what i'm saying is i guess that and, and the deep continuity that, that John mm -hmm. talks about, I think, is very compatible with the concept of the great chain of being. Mm -hmm. All right? Yeah. And it's even compatible with the concept of the incarnation. It's, a it's really very close to the great, the great chain of being concept. If the great chain of being is seen in a dynamic way, like I was yeah. saying. I think, right? yeah, what John would answer i i think and from my second conversation with him that sort of the movie was making is the the chain of being stops pretty quickly when you get above the level of humans because um you know the the properties which we exhibit when we're conscious um seem to peter out uh, if you get to higher levels so you know we, he was talking about for instance uh, you know, if you take a certain group of humans in a collective activity, he was willing to grant that, you know, maybe there is a collective, uh, he was willing to grant that there, there can be collective intelligence there, maybe even consciousness, but probably not agency, probably not anything higher. So, you know, in, in this deep continuity, a way to see it is that, well, there is, you know, continuity between our consciousness and, you know, whatever it is that you know, cells are and whatever it is that uh, proteins are and, and so on. There, there's continuity there. There's also continuity when you go up, but agency and consciousness peter out as you go up that ontological chain. Okay, how would we know if there was agency there? Well, does it, uh, for what uh, John said, he suggested a few things. For, for instance, you could look at maybe, you know, the sorts of, uh, of networks, do they look like the sorts of networks which we exhibit? Or you can also maybe, I don't know how this would work in the case of you know, groups, but in the case of, uh, let's say, humans who have split consciousnesses, um, you can maybe ask questions to 
the other consciousness and see if it knows things which the other consciousness doesn't know. And apparently there are uh, you know, in, empirical investigations on this. So maybe in the case of you know, a, a group, you can ask questions to the group and you know, the, the individuals would know the answers. So the group would seem to have real you know, agency, real int intelligence all by itself. And maybe you can, you can see this in the case of, of a church. You know, especially if you can look at long time spans, it does look like the church can have agency. You know, it, 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 can, it can grow, it can shrink, it can expand to other locations. You know, it can make, yeah, it seems to make decisions and so on. So maybe you could try to make that move. But uh, yeah, it's, it's harder to do than within panpsychism. So, but now I'm trying to, to see exactly how, you know, your, your response, uh, you know, when, when I was trying, uh, when I was saying that those are just patterns or there's are just psychology, I'm trying to see how you can, you could address that using that response. And you know, maybe you can help me out there. Okay, well, um, <laughs> so let's, let's go to, let's talk about placebo effect, yeah. all right? <laughs> so, um, you know, uh, placebo effect has to be has to be measured and then it has to be um, it, it has to be adjusted for in the final results of any medical trial right yeah so um, even though anybody with a brain would say that's probably the most that's probably the most interesting part of the whole medical trial is the placebo <laughs> effect right so now there's more and more studies on the placebo effect itself so the question of whether there's anything that is quote-unquote, just psychological in the sense of just psychological meaning not real, because if it, if it, if it can have a measurable effect in the physical realm, it's got to be real. Like Paul mm -hmm. Vanderclay says, what's real is what governs. So that's what I'm thinking of when you're talking about the group, the mm -hmm. collective intelligence that comes out of the group. So, um, so John Ravecki is saying the collective intelligence emerges from the group but it doesn't seem to have agency. And my question would be then, well, how do we know if it has agency? Well, if it has, if it has an effect on the group and can change what, and can change the movement, whether you want to call that, mm -hmm. whatever you want to call that movement, yeah. spiritual, psychological, emotional, whatever, of the group, how would we know that it doesn't have agency? It seems that it then, that it's controlling, but we want to say, well, it doesn't have agency. What he wants to say is that it's not, seems like what he wants to be saying is it's not a personality, right? It's not an independent personality apart from the group. Yeah. Okay, but I think that's a different statement than saying, well, it doesn't have any, it doesn't have any agency. It seems like it has agency. Um, I don't know if it has personal if it has personality. I think Jonathan Peugeot would say that you know a riot has personality, a mob mentality has a personality. Yeah. Um, you know, Uncle Sam is a is a, has a personality and is is an entity of some sort. Now, 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 what we're doing is we're just saying there are, there are spiritual entities. You know, we have these powers and principalities. Which gets us to another thing of what the the ancient church used to say, which also is deeply consonant with all of the mythical traditions, 
which is that the in the realm of the living things say on below the human like plants that there's mm -hmm. a spirit that's in charge of the plants so there are spiritual entities that are actually involved in in creation the the bible talks about the elemental spirits that there are that the angels are involved with even with the creation so that how we approach say plant and animal life in terms of how we treat it you know should be in a reverential way because it's not just i mean those aren't just meat machines walking around you know they're they have um not only that they're conscious but also that there are beings in charge of them and and you know in a sense working with them in the world that care that are giving care to them and that want us to care for them and with whom we cooperate in care this mm -hmm. is shown by um who was it saint what was the saint there's a saint that was a farmer saint is it i think it's Dora the farmer who um you know wanted to spend a lot of time in prayer but he also had his fields to plow and mm -hmm. his guardian angel would come and help him plow the field you know <laughs> i didn't so, know that story <laughs> yeah it's beautiful <laughs> so um so these you know these um you know i see inside of the christian tradition and especially when you go when you start reading the fathers or you deal with the mystical tradition and all I, I end up with I end up not having an ontological problem in terms of how the creation goes all the way up and all the way down. Mm -hmm. Does, you know, which I which I understand that some people are very allergic to. <laughs> I do <laughs> understand that. But so what I'm saying, I'm not averse to the panpsychism. Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, it's not like I look at it as something, oh that's that's a that's false and I would have to argue against it. I, mm -hmm. I just don't know how it, if in terms of being Catholic and being in this tradition, that it's, that it adds anything. However, that it could be a bridge for anyone to get from materialism to spiritual beliefs. I'm all for it from mm -hmm. that angle. Yeah. You know, <laughs> does that make sense what I'm yeah. saying? Yeah, sure. Yeah, because even, even today, and I know, you know, some of my Catholic friends, they do still see valuable insights from what, uh, you know, I've been talking about. Mm -hmm. But I also see that it wouldn't be necessary to go full-blown panpsychist to get those insights. So, for instance, in, yeah, when, when, when let's say we, we notice patterns during mass and we try to see how, uh, you know, those patterns are parts of the body of Christ and how it is that Christ is really there with us during mass through all of those patterns. Something I can talk about within my panpsychist framework because it's, you know, it's, it's very adept at talking about how those patterns are parts of a, a real being. But I also see from what you're saying that we could you know, make the same sort of move uh, with just deep continuity or, uh, you know, it, talking about yeah just simply your your ontological uh, chain of being that you could also explain how those patterns are not just 
psychological stuff and that they, they are they are parts of a real being as well they're really parts of the, the the body of christ so i see that you could yeah I, I see how you could say that ultimately what i yeah i one way of saying it especially if you watched my video where i talk about taking uh metaphysical and existential risks with uh, Verveke and Bergson mm -hmm. is I do think that you know my best theory of how mind and matter fit together are panpsychism that's sort of my, my best theory but there's a risk there I could also be more cautious and do what John says and just go with deep continuity because it still sort of solves the mind-body problem but you don't get a complete solution you don't really know you know exactly what it is in electrons which explains their behavior you don't really know exactly know uh, how it is that the consciousnesses of my neurons can combine and so on but you're not thinking why wouldn't why wouldn't god god placing constraints upon creation not be an explanation for the like the law of some we'll just say simply the laws of physics why would that not why would that not work Oh, well, uh, if, you, if you, you say that, I think that would work. But I was really talking about within deep continuity. Yeah, I'm just talking about the mind-body problem for now. Um, but yeah, if... Yeah, so yeah, I'll go back to what you said. But for now, just if you go with... Yeah, I'm just... Okay, if, if I just talk about the mind-body problem, I can see that, well, a cautious solution would be to go with deep continuity. Uh, it, I'm not sure exactly how it is that mind and matter are related, but there's a continuity between the fundamental particles and, and us. I think our best bet currently is panpsychism, that the deep continuity is actually an identity where there's consciousness all the way down. And then, you know, working from that, I... Well, no, the deep continuity didn't have identity. No, that, that's in panpsychism, the, the identity. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so that's just as regards the, the mind-body problem. And now to get to classical theism, I think either way, whether you're panpsychist or you just go with deep continuity, you will, you you will need to appeal to the classical arguments, like uh, the, the classical proofs from Saint Thomas uh, and things like this. You you will need those either way, and from there, you, then you can invoke your your point, you know, to explain how it is that the let's say the the laws of physics are are explained by you know, constraints being put by the. Uh, uh, by, by the ground of being, by, by God, then I think you can explain it. And this explanation would work whether you're in deep continuity or in panpsychism. What I should say is that it's slightly easier to understand within panpsychism because there are, uh, there's an interesting proposal in panpsychism coming from atheists who still want to say that, well, maybe, maybe the universe as a whole is not conscious today, but it probably was in the past. And you know, the move <laughs> is to say that well, at least you know, when the at the first time few moments, solves all their problems. Time <laughs> always solves all their problems. <laughs> <laughs> the idea is that if you look at the constants of physics, they're, they're so finely tuned that you need an explanation for this. And if you're a panpsychist, you can say fairly easily that well, the universe as a whole uh, as a consciousness. Sorry, did I did, did you? Catch yeah, back up back up a sentence because you froze there for a yeah. second. Sure. What the. What the panpsychist can say to explain the fine-tuning problem is to say that, well, in the same way that I am a consciousness, which influences, you know, the, the, the lower uh, consciousness, consciousnesses of my body, so I explain my behavior by, explaining, by using my consciousness, so the, the behavior of my, 
of my, my end, for instance, is governed by you know, the behavior of my, uh, is governed by my consciousness. Well, in the same way, the universe would be governed by its consciousness. So the, the constants of physics would be explained by the consciousness of the universe as a whole, who set those laws at the beginning of time. And you know, this is not a classical theist position because you could still be a, 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 just a let, theist. But... Let me say something about that because I have a question about that. <laughs> sure. Okay. What was the relevance realization going on with this universe's consciousness that made it decide on this particular set of constraints? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> because wouldn't, wouldn't all the possible sets of constraints become notoriously explosive and wouldn't the, the universe have to be able to realize the relevance of this particular set of constraints? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think that that's be an issue. And yeah, and yeah, I'm very much tempted to keep going uh, on your question because that's something I've been wrestling with recently, especially after talking with, with John. Um, yeah, which bring this up is, yeah, I, I'm gonna wrap up what I just said because it's almost over anyway, and then I'm gonna move to the, the thing I'm excited about. Um, so whether you, you go with panpsychism or with deep continuity, then you, you will eventually need to make a further, further step, you know, going to classical theist arguments for you know, God's existence. And not just talking about higher consciousnesses, but talking about the ground of being or the, the highest consciousness, logos uh, himself. But I, I think it's slightly higher to do, uh, uh, you know, as, as moves within panpsychism. And, and as you said, even, you know, existentially to get away from materialism and as a step toward uh, classical theism, panpsychism can help. So that's the sort of the, the, the way I see it. I'm more confident in panpsychism than than not, but I'm not. You know, I I don't need to be 100% committed to panpsychism. The idea is I, I just need all my most likely candidates for a worldview to point roughly in the same direction for you know <laughs> to be able to live my life. And you know, it seems that all my best theories of all of how the world works uh, are all pointing towards. Uh, Christianity and especially Catholicism. So I'm not sure exactly which uh, is better as a theory. Whether is is it, is it Saint Thomas? Is it like Neoplatonist uh, or, or Augustine? Is it Bergson or Pierre de Chardin? I don't know exactly, but they're all pointing me towards the same direction. So I'm not that worried. But yeah. Uh, <laughs> so so I think yeah I yeah so so I I agree with your points. And now if you if you still have time, I I'd be really excited to talk about divine simplicity here. I think about what? Divine simplicity. Oh, just one second. I yep. have one other thing okay. that I want to mention to you. Uh, and this is to the, the whole point about John Verveke talking about this, you know, this um, intelligence, you know, the collective intelligence uh, emerging and, yep. and um, the question of whether it's intelligent based on having, a, a, having its own agency, etc. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I'm going to make a move here of say, saying that in some of this conversation, we're really using a very masculine sense of what it would mean to be intelligent and to be an agent, hmm. okay? And what I want to bring out is that there's another way to be an agent, and that is to receive, to be receptive. The feminine, in the feminine um, archetype, you know, especially thinking about you know, we can always go to the Blessed Virgin for our for mm -hmm. our icon of that, right? So yeah. that receptivity, receptivity as opposed to um, 
as opposed to the activity, the, ma mm -hmm. the masculine, that it seems like in some of these conversations with our question about whether there's consciousness, in, it has a lot to do with whether something can be an agent, an active agent, and doesn't ever address whether something can be, a re be receptive, which is also a kind of agency. Yeah, I never thought about that. I'm so happy you mentioned this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna have to think about this for a while. This could be very useful. Yeah. Okay, and so uh, so one of the one of the things. Yes, yes. The the Blessed Virgin is always useful among many other things. <laughs> we're thinking about we're thinking about the creation, the creation as a receiver of the agency of God, mm -hmm. as receptive, so that that can go all the way down. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. That pattern can go all the way down. That goes so in relation to God, the entire creation is is feminine. Yeah. All right. Um, and and the Virgin Mary is the icon. She's the summation of all of the creation. Mm -hmm. So, so the creation is. And I like it. John Verveke said something at one point when he was talking to you and he was talking about the big, he mentioned, <laughs> and I was, I started laughing when he said this because he was talking about the big bang and you know what he said? He said that the big bang was pregnant. <laughs> oh, the big true. bang was pregnant with everything. <laughs> yes, because the universe was pregnant with Christ. <laughs> oh. So the pattern, you know, that's another aspect of the pattern, which mm -hmm. you guys, you guys, you men <laughs> don't talk quite enough about. But <laughs> well, that's good, especially I, I think with you know, relevance realization is uh, a lot about accepting patterns. You know, it's, it's a lot about, yeah. Yeah, there's a sense in which it is something more feminine than masculine you know, in seeing things and accepting things from the world, whereas it's when you, you act on those that you're making more of the masculine move. And of course, the two are always linked. Oh, yeah. I'm going to have to think about this for, for a long time. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can go off. You know, like Jordan Peterson says, go off and think about that for about five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks. That's really cool. Yeah. Thank you. And yeah, if you still have time, we can sure. say a few things about demand simplicity because yeah, it's something I've been really wrestling with. And, especially with, you, with what you said earlier, I think that's something else you could really help me with. Um, there's, I think John made a good point in our second discussion where, especially if you're gonna explain, let's say, uh, as we mentioned earlier, how it is that the, the fundamental protocols, why is it that the fundamental protocols behave the way they do? And you talk about the fact that it comes down from constraints set up by, by God and a danger here, which John, uh, yeah, which John mentioned, is you don't want to explain things by more complex things. You know, in and it's something that I, I think I agree with. It's more convincing when you can explain something using something simpler. So let's say, um, I don't think it's a. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> what? I'm not putting up with that. No, because <laughs> no, because. Because you can't explain anything. You can't you, now see what you're doing. Is you're using the analytical knife. Mm -hmm. you, there you go with that analytical knife. Have you been watching um, 
been watching a quality existence channel <laughs> Sevilla King she'd be all over that no you cannot okay and like this is something that EF Shoemaker said in um, a guide to mm -hmm. the perplex he said he said I can take a cat and mm -hmm. I can dissect the cat and I can make a complete analysis of its anatomy. I can go down into the cellular level, its biochemistry and everything. He said, when I get mm -hmm. all finished, I know everything about it except what made it a cat. Yeah. Okay. So mm -hmm. no, I, I'm not accepting the idea that it's better to explain things in terms of this, the simpler. It, it may be, it may be, um, it may be easier or it may have a certain utility mm -hmm. for what human beings want to do. That's part of what gives us power mm -hmm. over nature, right? But it's also what creates so many problems. It creates so mm -hmm. many problems with people even being able to look at ordinary things in, mm -hmm. in the human system. So for example, I advocate for people to grow as much of their own food in their own yard as they possibly can. Mm -hmm. And I'll have people say, well, you know, I have a bunch of trees in my yard. I don't have enough shade. And then I'll say to them, there's this wonderful invention called a saw. They even make chainsaws. And you can cut trees down and you can let sunlight in. But a lot of times the reason why people want the trees in their yard is they want deciduous trees in their yard because in the summertime they will shade their house. And in the wintertime they will drop the leaves and let the sunlight come onto their house. And I understand that. Mm -hmm. And they think that they're saving energy, but that's the reason they think they're saving energy by having the trees versus growing the garden is because they don't realize how much energy it's taking to bring them their food that's at the grocery store. So mm -hmm. you see, you can, you're always going to make errors in your analysis of something whenever you pull something out of its mm -hmm. entire larger yeah. system. I actually that's, agree with you. That's I, why I don't like that move mm -hmm. that what we always have to do is explain things in terms of the simpler thing. And then mm -hmm. somehow or another, we have a more secure base of knowledge to work mm -hmm. from. I just don't agree with that. I think you have to go in both directions all the time in a mm -hmm. dynamic way, mm -hmm. or you're never really going to understand. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. Because you can't understand unless you're standing under something, mm -hmm. which means you're looking at the larger system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. It's my bad for not being clear about what I mean by, by simpler. Um, maybe, maybe useful language here is uh, what Bergson said about analysis versus intuition. Um, no, yeah, I think I'll use those terms instead. It's if you just do analysis, which for him is to break things into the component parts and then try to explain you know, the whole in terms of the component parts. You know, this has some use, as you mentioned, for let's say allowing us to control matter and do useful things there. But this is analysis and it won't work for everything. And if you take the cat, for instance, you, know, you can analyze the cat in, in terms of its component parts and everything, but you won't know as much about the cat as if you use your intuition instead. If you try to you know, interact with the cat and try to put yourself in the mind of the cat, you will actually know more about the, the cat and you will be able to solve a bunch of problems which you wouldn't be able to if you just looked at the component parts. And the... The issue for explaining things, I think here is, let's, let's say if I take the precise example of explaining the, you know, the, how the constants of physics or uh, how the fine tuning is explained by the constraints set up by God, is I wouldn't want to say that, let's say God was somehow, let's say doing 
particle physics and looking at calculations to figure out which way the particles should go and so on. And you know, he considered a, a whole bunch of whole bunch of things. And you know, in his very complex mind, which you know is is sort of large and all-encompassing, that inside that that from that 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 very complex thing, simpler things would 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 trickle down because at least intuitively maybe a yeah i i think i'll try to say the sort of explanation which i would like is has to do with divine simplicity that somehow god didn't have to do all of those complex calculations and so on that just by by being love itself by being the the that the very way in which things can exist what is actually simple you know it from you take the simplicity, the attribute of the simplicity that God is, is very simple. He's not a mind composed of all kinds of calculations and so on. That is 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 is, is one simple thing. And from this simple uh, ground, of, I shouldn't say thing. From from this uh, simple ground of being, then more things that that seem more complicated or things which have lots of parts can trickle down from that. So I, I don't know if I made my point clear, but I, I, okay, so let me let me um, let me help you with that point because yep. I think that's a good point. Okay, so let me let me come at the reason why we talk about divine simplicity <laughs> is not because we don't believe that God that God that the mind of God can encompass complexity. <laughs> okay, not not for that reason, but when we talk about divine simplicity, we're talking about the fact that god does not have parts right and 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 is not is not divided is not divided in his being in his essence does not have you know for example time does not occur to god like yep. like one theologian said has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to god <laughs> so the, the simplicity is in the essence of god that there are not parts that even when we talk about when, when we talk about God's love and when we talk about God's justice, we're not really talking about things that are separate in God. Mm -hmm. So that's what we mean by divine simplicity. Okay, so what you said is very important though because it has to do, what it, what it ultimately has to do with when we get into Catholic theology, it has to do with the Trinity, okay? So the, when you talk about love, so it's the love. And a lot of times mm -hmm. when we think about God's love, we think about God's love for us. You know, we, God loves you, that sort of thing. But we, what we have to remember is that the, the love in God is the love of the persons of the Trinity for one another. So that the love that creates the universe, the material universe, is the love of the Father for the Son. Not, not, not primarily the love of God for us. So the, um, in fact, you know, the, the creation of the universe can be explained in a single verse of scripture that says that you prepared a body for me. So the father prepared a body for the son and that body prepared for the son is the entire cosmos, mm -hmm. is yeah. the entire material cosmos. So, and, and including all, all of the, mm. the conscious creatures in it. Yeah. Okay, so, um, so that that is the constraint. That mm -hmm. is the con the constraint. Yeah. Christ, the logos, 
for whom all things were made is the constraint on the on the um on the cosmos or on the fundamental particles if you want to say because they're moving the creation is moving towards this consummation of everything in christ so that yeah i think that's great yeah because ultimately i'm you know i'm trying to it seems i'm always trying to build bridges between naturalism and classical theism maybe because there are still parts of me that are naturalist and i want to make them you know ascend but yeah, because i do think that's a good point which the naturalist can ask for you know we would like explanations to to come from i don't want i, I, I hesitate to use the word simple but you don't want you know to multiply explanations forever you ultimately you would like to get to sort of a fairly small set of principles from which more complex things flow and i think what you just said was was really great because you can explain you can explain things like the fine tuning of of physics you can explain all sorts of you know seemingly you can explain all sorts of miraculous things in nature by coming to that simple principle of you know of love of the relationship between the father and the son and from this simple uh act of love trickle down all the complexity which we but know remember see. the love is reciprocal so yes. it's also the love is returned from the father mm-hmm. to the son and yeah. the love yeah. is shown by obedience and in sacrifice so mm-hmm. we live in a cross-shaped universe mm-hmm. this and is great so the the creation the redemption the consummation it, it's all one act of love mm-hmm. within the trinity mm-hmm. and so that's you know that that's what provides the constraints mm-hmm. so you know there, there's there's a lot to ponder when you think about this i mean mm-hmm. you can think about you know why are there trees so that there would be a cross why does iron exist so that there would be nails <laughs> you know oh. that's that we live in and and just if you say i i have to have a universe with i have to have a universe where there where where God can hang on a tree with iron nails from that you build, you can build all the constraints of reality right there because everything, every, all the fundamental particles, everything, it has to all be right there. Mm -hmm. All right. So that's, you know, that's just, that's the way I look at it. That, that, that is the logos is that is the provides the pattern and the love between Mm -hmm. the father and the son provides the pattern for all of reality for all of creation and is a simple and is a simple explanation yeah but but because we had to have the freedom we had to have freedom to love that was another constraint that's a that that would be the second constraint on freedom is the is another constraint what would be what would freedom look like yeah, you so, need that for love. Yeah. This is so great, Mary. I think this is a, a great point to to end it. Okay. Uh, it this has been this has been truly delightful. I'm I'm very happy about this. And uh, yeah, yeah. Just thank you. And if you want to do it again, uh, just don't hesitate. Uh, I'll always be ready. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. If you think of a topic that we could mm-hmm. that we could explore together. Um, I want to recommend something to you. I yep. want to recommend to you a particular writer 
Um, and uh, the reason I'm recommending him is for the sake of the other writers that he recommends. Okay. okay. This is Robert Spitz, Robert J. Spitzer. Mm -hmm. uh, or I'm sorry, Robert Spitzer. And um, it's, there's a series of books that he's written. The first one is called The Soul's Upward Yearning. And, and the subtitle is Clues to Our Transcendent Nature from Experience and Reason. One of the uh, writers that he recommends, and he's very useful because he provides detailed outlines of every single thing he does in the front of his book. So you can go through and you can find an outline of all of his arguments mm -hmm. laid out and you can find things very quickly. But in this section, chapter six in here, where he talks about the soul and its brain toward a theory of transphysical self-consciousness, mm -hmm. he mentions a particular author that I think you would like to look into. And I, I haven't looked into that author. I've just read about him from mm -hmm. out of this book. But his name is Lonergan. Lonergan's Levels of Reality. Um, and he talks about um, the about God as the un, uh, unrestricted act of thinking. Mm -hmm. All right. So this is um, Loner, Lonergan's proof of God has set the minor premises, the totality of reality is completely intelligible. Mm -hmm. Right. And then his conclusion is if the totality of reality is completely intelligible, God exists. All right. So this uh, doesn't this all sound like stuff that you would really, yeah, that you would really like. Okay, <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I love to look into. You, might, you can look direct, You could look into this book by Robert Spitzer, mm -hmm. or you could look into if you wanted to look up this um, author Lonergan mm -hmm. and see what he has to say. I think that would be useful. All yeah, right. Good. Yeah. Thank you a lot, Mary. <laughs> All right. Thank you too for the conversation. God bless. Bye. God bless.